Unconscious Bias Project. <laughs> Hi everyone, hola a todos, Lynette and Alexis here. Your co-hosts, both she, her, bringing you impactful stories and interviews from our communities. We have our favorite people share their experiences, viewpoints, and the topics that matter the most to them so we can all support each other. And before we kick off, I'd like to tell everyone to go and learn more about the Ohlone people and the current Shell Mound protests to support their life, heritage, and rights. The Unconscious Bias Project is based in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, which is unceded ancestral homeland belonging to the Ramaytush Ohlone and Muwekma Ohlone peoples. The Muwekma Ohlone tribe could use your support in helping restore their federal recognition. And there is a link for that in this podcast description. You can support our work by supporting them too. I also personally just went back to the Shumi Land Tax website and recalculated my annual suggested donation and a page gave Shumi. And I encourage others to do so as well. Um, that's awesome, Alexis. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Hi, Lynette. Hi, Seth. How are you doing today? Oh my gosh. Hi, Alexis. Hi, Seth. Uh, hi, Alexis. Hi, Lynette. How are y'all doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. It's really good to see the two of you because I wanted to talk to you guys about something that I've been thinking about lately a lot is around like relationship building and communities. Because like in communities, right, whether that's a, you know, recreational community, a little league team, a school, a nonprofit, a for-profit organization. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how key relationship building is to team building and community building. Because I mean, right, like what is community if it's not a collection of relationships? Oh, snap. That's deep. So true. You're welcome. So yeah, like do either of you have any thoughts about that? Well, that's interesting because one of the things that we think about a lot in the field of diversity and inclusion or people and culture and stuff like that in organizations is how are we going to reach systemic change? Like, is a presentation, a workshop even going to make any kind of change? And, you know, of course, a single workshop isn't going to, you know, fix all the problems we have. But I do think at least our approach at UVP is by working on community level relationships within organizations. Those are like the mini building blocks of society. So no, we're not going to be able to train or work with every single person in the world, but you know, there's enough people out there doing this work in different ways and people are receiving it in different ways and interacting with it in different ways. But I do hope that collectively our efforts are making institutional change, community-based change, local change, you know, and eventually is impacting systemic change as well. How about you, Seth? What do you think about all this? Part of me is fascinated by this because of the communities that I'm involved with. I'm heavily involved in uh, the non-monogamy polyamory community. And a, a lot of things, uh, what you're talking about is completely app uh, applicable. 
in the world that I live in. You know, relationship building is so important, especially when building a community. And with relationship building, there's, you know, team building and like, what are some key things to team building? I'm, I'm curious because I feel like the two of you definitely are more involved with what the work of UBP does. Yeah. You know, I think like I was saying, like I think about it in terms of relationship building, just because, you know, in order to have a functioning team, you have to trust each other. Right. And you have to be able to know that you fully respect each other. Cause if there's somebody on the team that you're like, you know, I don't know if they actually respect me then that can cause a lot of friction and prevent the team from like working together to its best potential. Part of that like is also like how we talk to each other, right? Because like, it's really amazing to build relationships, but if they're fragile, if they are, you know, if people don't know how to nurture those and instead just like at the last, like at any drop of a hat are, like destroying those relationships again, like because they don't know how to talk through things, you know, that is, that's a problem. Is there a, a specific modality or, or a way of communicating that might be helpful in, in this thing? I mean, you know, you know, I can see how it would not be effective by saying, Hey, Alexis, you know what? Um, I'm really pissed at Lynette because I was not able to get my work done because what? she decided. Yeah. Oh, um, um, hey, Lynette. Mm, cry. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you listening at home, that was not a real life example. No, absolutely not. What, what kind of conversations can we have that, that would help drive more of uh, building relationships in community? Well, one of the things that I was thinking about um, is both in what um, you and Alexa said, like, conversations. So having established, you know, pathways for communication, you know, if that's in a relationship, we could be looking at, you know, phone calls, texts, and uh, I don't know, maybe notes and just talking with each other, having a time to really get into having the space to get into different kinds of conversations. And I think it's the same in like teams, like working teams and organizations, you need your open and established methods of communication. In the bit about trust, there is also a vulnerability because, you know, if we take this, you know, out of just relationships to, you know, thinking about businesses, we're just all like, yes, we're so professional. Hi, how do you do? You know, like just kind of keep it, um, you know, really like, I'm only going to say the safe, safest things I can say. So I won't get in trouble and I won't step out of line or do anything wrong. Then you're really missing an opportunity to get to know the other person and their strengths and what areas they need help with. And so a, a, a fruitful, you know, creative team that can overcome challenges are those that are willing to hear each other when something is wrong or when there's something new because you need to be vulnerable in order to get to progress like if we just did the same thing over and over again we know that that's not going to necessarily 
fix things or, you know, reach a new solution or, you know, cure a new form of cancer. But if you allow yourselves to share some vulnerability in that space of creation, in that space of, well, you know, this, I have this idea, but I don't know much about this other side of the field, then you can get to collaboration and really exploring things together. And I think, you know, ideally, I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a super, you know, relationships person, um, but ideally you'd have similar spaces where you can talk about um, feelings and you can talk about, you know, uh, dreams and wishes and life goals um, in personal relationships with your friends or with your loved ones, uh, with your partners. Yeah, that's what I think of. But the other thing that I thought of as I was talking about, oh, conversations, blah, 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 is that things can be very different in different cultures and in different groups. For example, in my family, my extended family in Colombia, people don't really talk about mental health very much. And that is a really important part of our lives. Um, but on the other hand, with my friends in the Bay Area, at least, we bring up mental health topics, you know, as you would, oh, I saw so-and-so the other day. I just went to therapy, you know, and I'm dealing with this. It's a, it, there's less of a barrier there. So I think it's also important to recognize that different groups and different cultures um, can have their own style of communication or places where there are gaps um, or where they excel at. So it could be really different. Going back to what you were talking about, Lynette, like this makes me think of uh, a, a couple books in order to help create that authenticness, authenticity, authenticity of communication as well as uh, an openness and empathetic listening. For me, getting into the self-emotional work that I, I have been doing for a very long time, um, I started reading Marshall Rosenberg's book, Nonviolent Communication. And it's a great way of creating I statements and taking ownership about how you were feeling as well as a way of empathetic listening. And of course, you know, there is this, the gospel of Brene Brown. Pretty much pick any book of hers. And she has a beautiful way of how to be a daring leader uh, and find new ways of working and uh, create, you know, this series of like non-blame conversations. Yeah, like non-blame conversations are so important in terms of like how we can because of course there's always going to be conflict right there's always going to be conflict within a team eventually like a thousand monkeys a thousand typewriters eventually two of them are gonna get in a tiff there's eventually you know given enough time and enough people you're eventually going to have some sort of conflict like recently in not UBP land. I'm on a team where I may have like overstepped my bounds a little bit, stepped on somebody else's toes. And I'm really grateful to the other person for like having a non-blame conversation with me, wherein she was like, so I'm feeling a little bit hot around the collar at the moment. And like, I'm not saying you did anything wrong, but I'm saying like, I'm having this reaction and I would love to talk more about how we can like avoid this sort of a 
negative interaction in the fir- in the future so that we don't necessarily like step on each other's toes. And it wasn't like you did something wrong. It was just like inviting me to collaborate in not creating that conflict again. And I thought that was really neat. I was really grateful for that. Yeah, I think about that in terms of like diversity and inclusion as well, in terms of like, how do we, you know, tell people like, hey, I'm feeling hurt by this thing without it turning into you hurt me, right? And I think that's part of nonviolent communication as well, right? Is like making, trying to make a statement about what you felt and not necessarily about what the other person did and observing like facts and not assigning intention to the other person's actions. That also is uh, communicating a need. You know, if there is a, a request uh, from that person, um, you know, how to communicate that request in a way that is an invitation to also say no. Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, there are all these various ways of like creating these wonderful spaces for positive conversation. And um, I don't know, I've been thinking about that as part of like, the way that we build the relationships that are communities, but also in terms of like, you know, by creating more and more of these opportunities and creating and thereby creating a more and more respectful community, whether that's a, you know, interpersonal community or a workplace, you know, that's how we can create some really lasting organizational change towards a lot of really greater respect and, and just, you know, seeing each other and, making sure that we're all included. How can teams know that they are going in the direction of uh, the new mission statement or, you know, the, the new path that they want to take? Like, what are some ways in order to take uh, the temperature of the team and the people that are affected by this change to, to ensure that, like, this is working or maybe what isn't working. Exactly, Seth. So big changes like organizational change, a new mission, a new direction, or in the case of a lot of the folks that we work with, trying to, you know, be more inclusive or do more of the good stuff and less of the stuff that's making people feel excluded. Um, Well, you know, it is relatively easy if you have like a quick, feedback button or something, or, you know, you send out like a really quick, uh, they call them like pulse surveys nowadays to see how people are doing. But when you want to get like a full, like, Hey, how are things really going? That's where organizations work with groups like ours, um, where they want to, you know, get an in-depth assessment. And in this case, the assessment isn't you know, are you getting an A plus or a C minus? It is, what's what's a snapshot? How are people feeling right now? As you would, you know, if you sat down with your partner and you're like, hey, how are things going? You know, you're just like really checking in with people. And by having it be, you know, a group outside of the company, um, outside of the team, outside of the organization, people feel a little more comfortable. They feel they they can be a little more vulnerable, especially if they're they feel pretty um, confident that the group that they're working with, a third party, treat their personal information really carefully. 
this sounds like something I heard of a while ago. Does it sound like something? Yeah. Does you know, now that you mention it, this is ringing a bell in terms of a conversation that we had with Chrissy Stachel a few weeks ago. No way. The Dr. Stachel. You know, it was a really interesting conversation where she talked about her background in um, relationship building and diversity and inclusion work. So, dear listeners, this is uh, our segue into going, oh, my gosh, we have this recording that we would love to share with you of our conversation with Dr. Chrissy Stachel, where we talked about all of these topics. What an amazing random happenstance. So everybody get excited, have the drum roll ready, because we are welcoming today Doctora Chrissy Stachel, pronouns she, her, ella, woohoo! A Latina scientist, Chrissy works at the intersection of science and education to ensure that anyone can thrive in STEM. She earned her PhD in chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley in 2020 at first working to better understand how water molecules vibrate and interact with one another. And along the way, Chrissy's desire to make the field of chemistry more diverse and inclusive actually led her to switch her research focus to STEM education and developing methods to understand issues that negatively affect diversity, equity, inclusion, and a sense of belonging within graduate communities. To do the research, she received support from a couple of places you may have heard of once or twice, the National Science Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Welcome, Chrissy. Hi, everyone. Hi, Lynette. Hi, Alexis. So mm. awesome to be here. Yeah, we're mm. so excited to have you. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. Yes. So um, to start off, I would love to know, um, in your words, what is Reflecting Equity, the organization which you're part of. Yes. Um, so Reflecting Equity is uh, kind of my baby. Um, so we are a consulting company that focuses on equity, inclusion, and belonging within organizations. Um, and so I founded this organization in early 2021 um, as kind of a response to some of the work that I had done in grad school to help my department improve uh, and prioritize wellness for graduate students, postdocs, and faculty. Um, yeah, I guess we'll talk a little more about this later, but I just fell in love with the work that I got to do in education um, and, yeah, really wanted to just bring that work to other organizations and help them improve their uh, equity and inclusion practices. Okay, so you wanted to start reflecting equity because you're like, okay, this work that you did um, was really important and I hope you can tell us a little more about about that work and why you were like you know what everybody needs to have this what was what was that like impact or you know what you did or the results you got that was that made you be like because one thing is like okay I'm going to study something I'm going to get some cool results and you're like yeah that was awesome but another thing is like you know what I'm going to start reflecting equity and I'm going to pour like myself into this everything i've done so far i'm going to put myself out there that that's a little different right yeah absolutely that is very true um and i guess i'll backtrack and talk a little bit about the journey that got me to switching to education um so uh i guess as a latina i've always 
been very aware of like diversity initiatives and how it feels to be in different spaces and really thinking about like how I feel like I fit in and 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 am welcome into a space. Um, and so by the time I got to grad school, I had seen so many efforts that had been started either by institutions or by administration in a department. I had seen them fail, uh, primarily because the input from people in the community was not really there, or they, you know, hadn't asked the community about like what it was that they needed in a way that would lead them to generate a really successful initiative to help them. Um, and I think that's true of initiatives for really any community that's not unique to just being Latina or just being a particular marginalized group in STEM. Um, but yeah, by the time I got to grad school, I was like really struggling with my mentorship relationship um, with my advisor. And I had started realizing that other people were really struggling in the same way. And there had been efforts to try and address that, but they weren't really successful. Um, and so I kind of like took it on myself uh, to find a way to figure out if the administration would even be open to like hearing from the students in a different way and kind of start changing the dynamics. Um, and I was really motivated by this, like by the fact that grad students are the heart and soul of a department. Like grad students are the ones that do the work, that do the research to be able to apply for grants and receive money that then funds the university itself. And I was like, why are we not being paid attention to when we have all of these like communication issues or um, different things that might come up that like would hinder our goals or our progress to do what we want ultimately after we leave the university? Um, and I remember this moment where I like was halfway through the initiative that I had started. And I was like, when's the last time you asked the grad students what they wanted? <laughs> and the administration was like, uh, I don't, I don't know if we've really done that in a systematic way before. Um, so that's kind of like where everything started to really unfold for me of like, I need to find like we together and like, I was leading the charge at this point. So like, I need to really find a way to help bridge the communication gap with the faculty and the administration and then the students and postdocs who were sometimes not always, but like sometimes really struggling with inclusion and wellness and mentorship and mental health. So that's kind of what kicked off a lot of the work that I did in grad school in the education space. What was that like making the choice to be like, you know what? I came in here wanting to study, you know, how water molecules were being <laughs> to like how people are being and how they're connecting with each other. Was that like a moment of like, you know, was it either or I mean, it could be anything. But I if I was in that in that space, I would I could imagine questioning like, what am I really doing here? Is this where I want to be? Or was it like a oh, actually, this is my jam. Like, I love this stuff. I love, you know, thinking about molecules and, you know, how things interact with one another. But this right here, people and how they work with together and how to make STEM more inclusive. This is my jam. Honestly, back then. And when I reflect on this, I'm like, I, I think it all happened by accident. <laughs> um, but at the time, it was not intentional for me at all. Um, so. 
since undergrad, I've always been very involved in my community, um, typically like in a student org or doing community service or something, both on and off campus. Um, so when I got to grad school, I was like, I need to find an outlet that's not just in chemistry because I, you know, representation is a real thing and not seeing people like me. I think I was one of maybe three Latinas in the whole department of 400 students. So I had found like a couple of student orgs that I had connected with. And that's kind of how I got into the assessment piece that led me to switch into education. But at the time, because I had that outlet and I had joined a couple of like Latino um, scientist orgs and then the chemistry graduate life committee, which was in chemistry, but it was like people from all different fields and all different levels of the department to like come together and basically help liaise maybe between the faculty and the student body. And at the time they did primarily social events and things like that. So I just used it as a very social space. And when I realized that I was having a lot of uh, issues with my advisor, I got to a point where I was like, I am so invested in this work and like helping other students kind of navigate their own hardships in grad school. And I just got so invested because I had no, really my motivation for my own research was diminishing because I was just, I felt like I was constantly fighting this uphill battle of like, I don't get support. I don't feel like I'm really allowed to meet the goals that I have for myself in this group, even though it's what I thought I originally wanted when I came into grad school. And so I still love the research, but I just, I didn't feel like I could progress any further with the help that I was getting, especially after my like, graduate student mentors graduated. So they graduated and I was left kind of like on my own in a very toxic space. And it just, it was really hard to navigate. So I put all of my soul into like working with the chemistry graduate life committee or the CGLC um, to find this new route to like open bridges for communication. Um, and part of that happened through a survey and through assessment, which I guess going full circle back to reflecting equity is how I even got into the world of assessment. Because before that, I was like, I have no idea what a survey is. No idea how to write one. Um, I had no systematic knowledge of like how to even go about understanding everybody's perspective in a space. So it was it was a very natural transition for me at the time. But reflecting back on it, it was totally like I was trying to get out of a space and into another and it just worked in my favor. That's amazing. That's amazing. I think that's something that, um, you know, as you're, as you're telling your story and like, you know, I get <laughs> flashbacks is the right way to put it, but, um, <laughs> echoes maybe echoes to my experiences in graduate school and what I saw my friends go through. And, um, I, that was just a very nice way of putting it. I, you know, you weren't receiving the help you needed. It's like the total lack of resources. And, you know, to be fair, graduate school is just a bunch of pressure. It's a bunch of pressure on faculty. It's a bunch of pressure on students and postdocs. And there's not a ton of structure or communication or expectations or you know, ongoing support or anything like that, that you would expect with something that's often referred to as an apprenticeship. And there's a lot of the culture of like, well, do you love the research enough? Like, do you love science enough? Because if you don't, then why are you here? You know, it, it feels it's, um, 
even the way people talk about about graduate school sets up a really toxic system and mentality. And I, I think it's really hard to take a different perspective and say, actually, I'm not receiving the help that I need in order to succeed. And, you know, to turn your mind instead of like diving into the depths of this is terrible, <laughs> turning your mind to, hey, this is something that is both important to me and I think I can help. And even if I don't have all of the skills yet, I know that, you know, I'm going to champion this like this. This is, is important and I'm going to like throw myself into this. I think that's that's super cool. I'm kind of curious. So I know I so for folks that are listening, um, <laughs> Chrissy and I met um, back when UBP was a baby nonprofit. And uh, we just done some work uh, with uh, the College of Chemistry Diversity and Inclusion Focus Groups, I think was what it's called, CCDIFG. DIFGs. Um, yeah. Uh, tell me about, uh, w- was that in any way connected to your work? Because ca- I think we, we more talked like after we were done, UBP had done our, our workshop there. And I'm, I'm just curious, like if any of this overlapped with, you know, if UBP's work and your work um, overlapped at all, or if it was like a, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. Yes, it, it did overlap. Um, Diffie was actually, I guess, part of my first initiative um, after doing a climate survey in the Department of Chemistry. Really? Um, yeah. So oh that was gosh. also my baby. Oh, so <gasps> full circle. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I can tell you the backstory. Um, basically, in uh, so I started my PhD in 2015 and I passed my candidacy exam, which for the listeners, for the listeners is like our kind of master's exam. It's like once you pass that test, you get um, technically you have the qualifications to leave with a master's. But if you pursue the program, then you basically move on to writing your dissertation for your PhD. Yes. Um, for the listeners, that explanation was necessary, not for one of the hosts. <laughs> for Alexis, too. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, no. <laughs> but this is great context because something yeah. that I learned in going to conferences is that that's not true for every country or every academic mm-hmm. system because in other countries after you pass that test you actually do get a master's whereas mm-hmm. here at least at UCSF getting your master's when you joined a graduate program meant you like failed basically that's true yeah I, it's awful yeah but sorry continue well this is yeah. thank you for this context <laughs> yeah yeah well and in some places you have to have a master's before going to your PhD mm-hmm. so there's like a whole layer of different things. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So I passed my candidacy exam. Um, and that's actually, uh, in 2016 when my graduate student mentors graduated my, my first group. Um, so I basically passed my exam. Um, and then I was really just alone in my instrument and in my lab working on my project. Um, so that's when I realized that I was really going to struggle like meeting the milestones I needed to meet for my own personal goals and for my research group. 
just because of the communication that I was having at the time with, uh, with the group in general. And so I joined the chemistry graduate life committee and started basically using that as a platform to talk to other students and meet other students and kind of ask other people like, what do you, are you struggling with the same thing? Is there something else that you're struggling with? Like, what has the department done in the past to like really address our concerns? And I was starting to hear like a lot of similarities in terms of the struggles that students were having. Um, I guess the term for this now would be like just doing interviews or doing focus groups with people. But back then I didn't know those words. And so it was just me having like very informal conversations about what some of the things we need to address are. Um, And so that kind of led me into basically writing our first climate survey. And I took all the information that I had from people that I had spoken with to kind of come up with a survey that was short, would capture the data that I felt was really useful to clearly inform the administration of the struggles that students were facing. And that could like not give people survey fatigue that was like very to the point and like as useful as possible. And because I had involved so many people in the process, by the time we actually like finished the survey and disseminated it in 2018, so it took like a year and a half to do all of this. Um, by the time I disseminated it, it was like a department-wide thing. All the students and the postdocs were like, oh, I'm so excited for this. Like my voice is counted for, like, I'm so glad that people are like working on this. Um, and so we released the survey in 2018 and we got like, 40% response rate from the students what? and postdocs. Oh, wow. That's super high. Yeah. And 75% of the faculty responded. No way. That's yeah. huge. Now that's, that's huge. That's, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I remember very vividly this moment when, and so at that time, actually, so this was in the spring of 2018. Um, and up until this point, so we had collected the data and the faculty were like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. We've never had this much data. Like, this is amazing. And our chair was retiring. So there's a new chair coming in, department chair. Um, and he was like, what do we do next? Like, what do we do with the data? And I was very adamant that the whole point of collecting the survey data was to use it in a way that would be very productive for the department. Um, and so we decided to have a town hall. Um, to basically introduce the new chair as the chair and then also present some of the outcomes and then have like a brainstorming session. And this is super critical because the situation back then had been that the town halls we had had up until that point were not very productive. It was like a very one-way conversation among the faculty to the students. Um, the students were always very disappointed because they felt like they couldn't speak or voice their concerns. Some of the people that had felt at that time like the things they said were just dismissed. And I think it was just because there was no systematic way of like really honoring the input that students gave in that space. And so by the time 2018 rolled around and we had all this data, I was like, we're not going to call it a town hall. We're going to reformat it. We're going to give the power to the students because that's the reason we got so much survey data was the students. Um, and so the new chair kind of gave me the leeway to basically do whatever I wanted in restructuring this thing. Um, and so we put 
we sent out an email to the department and we're like, hey, we're reformatting our town hall. We're basically just going to have it be like a brainstorming session for the department. If you're interested in leading a conversation um, and like taking notes and facilitating discussion, please let us know. And so we got a bunch of volunteers. I got them trained um, in like navigating difficult conversation with the ombuds office. Um, and so we like, we were like a force. We like came into this discussion, like ready to include the faculty and ready to like spread the power and have it be just like a way to collect information on how to best use the issues that came up in the climate survey and contextualize them to find very practical ways to like change the things that were going wrong in the department. Um, yeah. And so it was really successful. And so out of that is where we realized that people just really wanted a space to talk to faculty. Like it really helped reduce a lot of the barriers that felt more like animosity before when in reality we realized that we were all on the same page and there was just like a lot of lack of transparency about what the barriers based on bureaucracy are or like what it is that financially we can't do or like things that we can't change. Um, and so it like really opened these like channels for communication. And one of the things that came out of it was that people wanted more spaces like that. So that's how DIFG was born um, because people were like really valued the space that we had built for them to kind of come into community and talk together. And so then we ended up having like very, like much smaller monthly ones that ended up being where we brought Unconscious Bias Project in to do like a bias workshop. We kept doing those every month. And then we kept doing the survey and the town hall every year in the spring after that. And were you able to see a shift in how people were feeling or how communication was going or transparency? Yes. So the survey stayed the same um, until I graduated in 2020. So the last chapter of my dissertation, which is published, and Woo-hoo. I guess we can link that in the notes. Yes, <laughs> of course. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So there's three years of data. They've kept doing the survey, so there's way more than this. But by the time I graduated, we had three years of survey data. And one of the members of my committee decided that um, he was like, I want to do this and just be a part of the analysis. So he learned like how to do longitudinal analysis and like correlated all of our data to each other. And there was statistically significant change along several lines of the survey. So it was like um, mentors and mentees opened up channels for communication about things that are not just research. So there's an increase in them talking about emotional and physical well-being. Um, in general, students and postdocs felt way more valued and included than before um, than in 2018. Then we also had students and postdocs report that they knew who to talk to when they had a concern about inclusion and wellness. Statistically significantly, I think maybe only three people said no out of like 300. And then the other thing that changed was uh, like conflict and open communication in labs. So people thought that in general, environments were more collaborative and that it was really nice to see like this push towards addressing equity and inclusion efforts and action toward equity and inclusion compared to before 2018. And nothing was negative. So things didn't change or things changed positively, but nothing went the other way, which is so cool. Yeah, that's really incredible to be able to see that change and to have it yeah, quantifiable. Yeah, it was awesome. I like never in my wildest dreams had I imagined that that's where like 
my education path would take me. Yeah, I can't even imagine like being in a situation like that and then like <clears throat> stepping up to turn it around. That's so much. Yeah. I remember the biggest difference, um, at least in my mind, because obviously I was in the middle of this. So for a lot of it, I didn't really see it happening until the new generation of people in the CGLC came in and they didn't even know that the things I had started didn't exist before 2018. And then when the Black Lives Matter protests resurged after George, George Floyd's murder, I remember all of this like campus-wide action and student groups coming together and like really talking about how they were going to write letters to the administration and like demand certain things. And at this point, I was getting ready to graduate. So I had stepped back from my role in the CGLC. Um, but the person that took my place was the one that attended all of these meetings. And she was like, I felt like we were the only student group that did not use the word demand or force or like basically this like heavy action word to communicate with the administration. She was like, every time we have an idea, we just talk about it with the chair because we've had all of these open channels for communication for so long that it didn't feel like this very animus animosity driven Mm -hmm. kind of relationship so i remember that being like the first day that i was like oh my gosh <laughs> like this is really yeah. amazing <laughs> yeah that's that's really huge to have your have the folks that you're working with be your partners rather than your adversaries yeah um i was actually wondering that earlier about what whether you found that you had a rhetorical shift if if it had started out like more adversarial and then felt more collaborative, but you've already kind of answered that. Um, Cause I just think about like when I was working with some of my queer students and my students of color at my old school and they would be like, we need to demand this thing of the administration. And I was like, mm -hmm. cool. By assuming <laughs> that they're going to disagree with you, yeah. you're almost inviting them to disagree with you. What can you do to just assume that they're on your side, that they'll come along? Like, yeah. there's something really powerful there, too. Yeah. And I think I think that's one of the biggest issues. I mean, there's like a lot of really big issues that all work together. But I think one of the biggest things is like, how do you even like with a system that has functioned this way for so long? How do you even stop and are like. Where did we make the assumption that we're on different sides? Right. And like. I think there's a lot to be said about, yes, there's people that walk the halls and are kind of terrible, but there's a lot of people that really just don't know how to communicate the things that they need and end up saying wrong thing and get defensive about it. And there's just like, it's like a loop, right? The more we stop talking about the things we care and really want and learning from them and switch over to like, oh, they're going to tell me I'm terrible and then get defensive about it and things like that. It comes into how like Lynette and I in workshops, we um, have a module about apologies and just like, and that piece, right, is about how do you foster those open conversations where now it's, yeah, it's not like you're going down the wrong path. You know, you need to do this thing, that thing. And instead you can be like, you know, actually look around on your own and be like, oh, I need to apologize for this thing. And then when you receive mm -hmm. the apology, you can be like, cool come with me. Like, yeah, absolutely. It makes such a difference. 
And it sounds like that's what your program in your school, in your grad school, was so good at creating that open dialogue. Yeah. This other really stark change that I noticed. um, So there's four publications on this work. Um, The first one came out in 2019, right after we had done this reformatted town hall. And that one, I remember so vividly, my colleague and I who wrote the paper, um, or who I guess spearheaded the authorship on the paper, were we had to have every draft circulated by everybody, not just in the Department of Chemistry, but in the college. We had to have it approved by everyone. Everybody had to be kind of like, okay, if we're starting this initiative in this like really high-ranking chemistry department, we have to make sure it doesn't make a fool out of us, you know? And uh, so Yikes. also for context, <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. So for context, the College of Chemistry houses the Department of Chemistry, which is where I was, and then the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering. So there's two departments in one college. Yeah. And so uh, by the time, you know, this initiative kept going, and I think a big, a big thing that came out of this was a lot of what we just talked about, like recognition that sometimes we need to embrace difficult conversations and just like be vulnerable and learn from them and be able to just kind of impact the things that are around us based on what we learn and like how that vulnerability can make a huge difference. Um, And so by the time the like second, third and fourth papers came out, I didn't have to ask anybody for permission. Um, Obviously my advisor, but It was just like this whole change of tone of like my last paper, which we'll also link in the notes, was just like a very uh, associated narrative of how the change happened and how we got faculty and students on board. And like a lot of faculty contributed these like vulnerable comments of their own journey within the initiative and like how that movement got shaped. Um, And it was very vulnerable, like reading that piece over and over again in my head, I was like, wow. I cannot believe that we're here. Like, we're just putting this out there compared to, like, how cautious we were of the first paper to, like, how open we were about the fact that we are still making mistakes, but we're still learning and we're, like, publishing this. I was just, like, I'm so proud of this entire community because I just can't even, now I can't even imagine a world where, like, how it was before. It's really cool. I'm really hearing this theme of, relationship building right if you don't have the space to have conversations you can't really build relationships if you don't like make the space to truly listen how can you share vulnerability how can you build trust this is so foundational and it comes up i think almost every single time with organizations we've worked with right alexis where they're like yeah like even even some of our <laughs> our favorite long long time clients um, I remember when we were we were collecting data for this uh, DI strategic plan uh, for the County Welfare Directors Association, and one of their leaders was asked me. They're like, "Hey, I'm feeling nervous about this thing that people asked for. Like, they asked for salary transparency. Like, I don't think anybody does that. I'm not sure we can do that." And I was like, "Yeah, I get you." And they've also asked for it. So you can share like, I feel uncomfortable about this. And here's how we can meet you, you know, halfway while we're still considering this or, you know, just like 
to share what she was telling me. I was like, you can, you can, you can actually talk about that. That's okay. Right. What you don't want to do is pretend nobody asked for that or just like put it down and discard it as something that's important to them. Right. Cause then they're not being heard. So I think that's, that's one super cool that not only did you start creating these spaces for people to connect, but then you were able to look at that data over time, which was really cool. And now it's out there. Right. And then you, and also, you know, the whole process of, you know, people freaking out and then feeling much more comfortable with, Hey, we don't have all the answers. Hey, you know, we're in a process and um, to see it be adaptable, even to such an intense setting as, you know, summer of, yeah. So summer of 2020, when, you know, everybody was flipping out about the pandemic. And then on top of that, all these lynchings and murders started all this conversation. Um, I think that's, that's really, it's a testament to, to what that looks like. But I think this is important because it's, it's how you got started. It's why, I mean, to me, what I heard is like you seeing how powerful this was is what moved you like personally and professionally to be like, I need to start reflecting equity. Yeah. And this is why reflecting equity is important. It's because of exactly situations like this. Yeah. And I guess, so one of the other things that I learned was, so I think a lot of times people get really scared of diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, if you add that in there or not, depending on the community, but they kind of assume that it's this big thing that you have to do separately from everything else you do. And people are like, I don't have time. Or like, I just can't, I just don't have the time or energy to put into that. When in reality, I think a lot of the things I learned in my PhD, especially once we had this data and started changing, like making initiatives to change the climate, was like, we would do things like, I helped restructure faculty hiring. And it wasn't like blank slate, we started over. It was like, let's talk about how the process is working right now and how we can meet the concerns of students in small ways, right? So like one of the things we did was add a grad student panel to review each candidate, which grad students were so excited about because they were like, all I've ever wanted is to know how this works and how people get hired and how we can make it more inclusive. And so it was like a very small thing that we did for the faculty committees. They had to read one extra document, which was a summary of what the grad student committees came up with. And it was a small change that made this huge impact in the way that we hire new faculty. And so like coming out of that and similar initiatives that we ended up starting, it's like you don't need to maintain DEIB as this very huge separate thing. You can embed it in small ways to make a bigger difference, arguably, than you would if you just like started a new initiative and those people left the department or the university or whatever. Um, and so that's like one of the reasons that I did start reflecting equity because I feel like there's so much power in just one asking community members, whether it's students or employees, like what it is that they need and what they want and how that can be accounted for. And then two, like doing really small things in a systematic way to make everybody feel more valued and welcomed. And I think like one of reflecting equity's goals is to do assessment and is to help strategic planning and things like that, but also just helping with the recognition that 
there's things we can all do in our daily routine that can really help and make a huge difference. So I think that is a good moment to um, go to a quick break where we're going to hear a few words from Seth and then we'll come back and we'll talk more about reflecting equity. Hi everyone, this is Seth and I'm the audio editor here at UBP. I wanted to let you know that you can check out our guest website and learn more in the description section of your podcast or on our website. Also, podcasting is just one branch of what we do at UBP. Find out how UBP can work with you and your organization to grow inclusion and support diversity by visiting our website, ubpproject.org. Hi, everybody. We're back uh, from break and we're talking to uh, Doctora Chrissy Stachel. We just talked about how you got started on reflecting equity and how that really connected to um, your experiences in graduate school and all the work you did there. Um, so moving to the present, um, reflecting with reflecting equity, um, you're working with a variety of different groups where you need to be able to connect with a wide range of people. Um, what are some of the experiences you've had um, or what's like your approach to this work that helps you connect with all these different kinds of folks that you're helping? I had this quote that I heard um, actually in a different podcast that was kind of like, you tend to go into a field that helps you become better in that space. And I feel like that really resonated with me because I used to get defensive about making mistakes for one. Like I used to be very, not always in the DEI space, just in general. I was like, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. How horrible. This is, people are going to think I'm a failure. Like this is horrible. And that's like an, a big insecurity that I had when I was growing up. But like, as I've been in this work and have helped other people learn and like identify their mistakes and learn from them, I feel like I'm in a better space to help with that as well. Like it's kind of like this mutual growth process. And so a lot of the conversations that I'll have with new clients are really just like talking about what it feels like to be wrong and like to really understand how you can say sorry for something that might have caused somebody harm. And one of the first things I do with everyone is reinforce like the intention and the impact of words that they have and just like start from there start from what do you love about this company or what do you love about this organization? What does it feel like to maybe to know that not all of the people that work for you or that your students, et cetera, are happy? Like, how does that basically, how does that make you feel? And like, how can I help you in this like learning journey? So I feel like starting there and then going into like, okay, but in order for me to really help you, I need to know what it is that people are struggling with. And then I take that information and come up with like a two-sided survey or three-sided depending on the community, but one from like students and faculty or trainees in general and faculty or employees and managers and leaders, um, et cetera. So that's kind of how I start my process. It's a great answer because I think in this DI field, we all connect with our clients or our organizations or even people in focus groups. Um, with different starting points. So uh, yeah, I thought, thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And I guess from my experience, 
one thing I'll add is I've been reflecting a lot recently on like how I got here and how my experiences led me to to be able to open up those vulnerable spaces. But I think something that I'm really recognizing in myself is that I can make the most impact when I am fighting for people and on behalf of people, but not only just to make sure that people are aware that certain issues exist. Like I think my client base, at least right now, has all been very aware to a point that they know that they are struggling with something that they can't fix on their own. And I think me coming in in that space and like helping them navigate different ways and different practices to improve equity and inclusion in their community is really the space that I'm, that I thrive in, I guess, if that makes sense. (laughs) Um, It's really hard for me to just put all my energy and time into like continuing an uphill battle rather than really working with people to build community. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because definitely if you are like, you know what? Nope, this is a problem and we're just shutting down. Like every so often we will talk with folks who, yeah, like the the leadership's not on board and it's, you know, it's going to be an uphill battle the whole way. And people are going like, oh, is this really even a problem or finding ways to like minimize the problem? And that's, yeah, it's just, it's not as productive as when folks are like, yeah, we need to change. Please help us. We don't know how, but you do. And we want to do this. I also think about this a lot. I don't think I could have been in this particular space or mindset maybe before 2020. Like I think there's now, and maybe like your experience is different. Um, but I think for me, I feel like this, there's two different spaces of people that are working on DEI in general. It's like people that, that are the ones that you have to fight all the time of like, this is not correct. There's a problem. Like unconscious bias actually exists, like what you were saying, versus the people that are like, okay, yeah, now we have, we know, we know there's a problem. We maybe don't know exactly what it is, but like, that's why we bring on external help or like want to find somebody to help us with certain things. And I don't know, I don't know if that was true a few years ago. I think, I think you're right on that. Can I ask clarification? So, so you said there were two kinds of folks. There's the people that are like, um, unconscious bias is real or, you know, whatever issues of diverse inclusion are real. And we want somebody to help us with it because we know it's something that we need support on. And what are, what's the other folks? I guess the, and I mean, communities, not just individual people, mm-hmm. um, but the communities that, that kind of use diversity efforts as a bandaid that you know, uh, are like you just fight against them up and up and up and it's like really hard to get movement to fix anything that might be causing harm in that space or in that organization. And you're saying that um, it wasn't two groups before 2020? In my experience, that's what I think. I think there was mm. a lot of people that became slightly more aware but maybe don't have the expertise to do everything internally. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I do know that there's there have been people in this in our field for like decades. <laughs> like they've been doing this work for so long. Um, so maybe they either were able to, you know, get people from the band-aid to the 
active, community-based, you know, intentional, let's work on DEI space. Or, right, there were just, you know, the few spaces where they were really intentional, really trying to work it, they were able to connect there or, you know, their circles or whatever. That's a really interesting um, question. I wonder, I wonder, but I, I totally agree that, you know, since 2020, the level of general awareness of the impact of the work of (laughs) like why it matters at all, you know, has gone up 10, 20 levels. There used to be something that like, you know, you only hear about in some (laughs) people of color or queer spaces or some (laughs) disabled spaces, some activist spaces. But now it's, it's becoming a little more common, which is, is good. I mean, we, we, we've talked about this with, with some of our other guests and some of our clients. It's a, it's a, the sad, the sad wins, if you will. <laughs> like, did it really have to cost this many more lives for us to get to this point? And also, thank goodness it reached public awareness so that there are more people in more spaces. It's just, it's not just like sociology or like, you know, community groups, it's more, you know, it's in, in for-profit industry. It's in, it's in the freaking stock exchange, right? They're like asking for board diversity. And I, and I think we need to be careful that I, I don't think it was that the media finally picked it up. I don't think it's that, you know, it magically just happened, right? It was the work of so many activists yes. pushing so relentlessly, right? Over it many, was, many years. It was activists making it so that the media no longer had the choice to ignore it. Yeah. yeah and I don't want to diminish that work by any means. I think we wouldn't be where we are today without all of those activists and people that have been just generally pushing for awareness for so long. And I guess one of the questions I, that came into my mind was like, why does it feel this way? Like, why does it feel like there's a group of organizations now in this day that, that feels like they're more open to change than before? Because it couldn't just have been the resurgence of like public murders, for example, because they've been happening forever. And so I wonder, like, was there actually just like one moment that has led to this or I don't know. I hope that makes sense. You know, I think that's, it's not it's not only that there are organizations that are willing to ask for help but i would even say that they're willing to pay for help yeah <laughs> because my experience and i know experience of i think several of these people of uh, of these people not these people but several of the folks like us in this field have done a lot of this work for free in the past, or at least I did. I know I did in graduate school, but I think that goes back to how sometimes it takes, it takes like a lot, a lot of work. There's a lot in the, if you, you know, think of the iceberg, there's a lot in the background that happens for you to see the iceberg, right? There's a lot in the background, whether it's, it's research, knowledge, Uh, practice or whatever that brings us to the point where we do become consultants, where we are reliable experts. Yeah. And yeah, for instance, in my experiences as a teacher, people would like under 
estimate the value of that skill, of that knowledge, of that background base with things. Um, the act of education, right? The act of teaching, um, the act of doing all of this is a whole nother skill set itself. Um, so like, what are the skills that have transferred over for you from your background in education and chemistry um, that carry over to your work at Reflecting Equity? All of it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there is not anything that I learned in grad school and before that that I don't use today. I think everything from my knowledge of chemistry when I work with STEM clients and I'm trying to connect with them on more than just like equity and inclusion issues, being able to talk to them about, I understand the culture, like I came from the same background. I think that's really valuable. All of my teaching experience at different levels is really valuable. So like teaching a first year undergraduate course versus like a second year graduate course versus like a summer camp of teens, for example, all of which I got the chance to do in grad school. Even, and I think this is probably the biggest thing that I learned in grad school that I use every day is like navigating the conflict with my advisor, like working through difficult conversations about like very personal, interpersonal action, like interactions. I remember like seeking out several campus resources about how to navigate those spaces. And, and those are things that I learn every day. I bring those to my workshops, to client meetings, all of that. Um, yeah. And then I guess facilitation is kind of one of those things too, or like not just teaching on like a small scale in a classroom or smaller scale in a classroom, but leading like uh, exam discussions and like, practice for for things like that and doing office hours and like just the scale of teaching at different levels is really important for my work yeah oh my gosh and writing writing scientific papers and like learning to translate that into grants or into like more or I guess less jargony pieces for general audience things like that yeah and I love that, that I, I love that we get to use all of those skills now I feel like those are kind of the transferable skills that people talk about in like career prep workshops that sometimes we don't really get to reflect on until after we get a job, you know? Much easier to see in retrospect, I have to say. <laughs> Absolutely. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like my number one thing I tell folks um, when they're looking for jobs. It's like, so tell me what kind of jobs you want to go do. I want to do this, this, this. Okay, great. So t like, let me see your LinkedIn or let me see your, you know, summary that you have on your resume okay this has zero of the transferable skills that you actually have <laughs> it's like no wonder <laughs> like you 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 have those skills you just need to like highlight them yeah and actually something i really realized recently like so my mom comments on this one thing all the time and so i guess i just really internalized it recently but she was always like where did you learn how to talk to so many people like i always get stage fright I hate being like in the spotlight in any scenario. And I think that's something I also got from grad school. We have to just present our research all the time and people constructively and not constructively criticize you. And like, you know, you kind of learn to just on the fly, like answer questions and have really good responses to things. And I would not have those skills if I had not gone to grad school. Hmm. It reminds me. Oh, go ahead, Alexis. Yeah, thank you. 
It reminded me of this conversation we had where um, we were presenting some data that we knew was going to be surprising for this one particular group because they didn't hire us for this particular thing. And, um, and we uncovered stuff in, in our, our uh, focus groups that they, they weren't going to expect. And I came into that sharing the data with the thesis committee qualifying exam presenting to your department fear <laughs> with the like, we're going to get grilled. They're going to ask us all about the methods. They're going to test this, this and that. And I walked out of there being like, oh, that went really well. And so I want to shift a little bit. We loved interviewing you. I know our listeners loved um, listening to you talk. Um, what's like one, one thing we should read or maybe like an, an article or something that you, you think we should um, go check out to or a podcast or, you know, anything else that you think we should check out to continue our, our work. Um, in learning and, you know, trying to, as you were saying, build communication, build relationship, share vulnerability. I think one thing I've learned throughout all of my time doing this work is like how much value comes out of just like pausing to reflect on really and like really any situation that you're in talking about equity and inclusion, like just taking a pause before responding to anything even if it's just one second, just to like take a breath, like take a deep breath and just like hold your feelings in like a safe space and like welcoming them, I think can go so long. And I guess this goes back to our conversation about just really opening the space for vulnerability and connection with people is something that like I feel can make a huge difference. Um, and I know that's really hard, but something that I think can really start changing like social norms and the way that we're always very quick to respond to things or yeah, just the rapid pace of things. Um, so just slowing down a little bit and reflecting before responding. Thank you. So to wrap things up, we have one more section that we always have at the end, um, which is shout outs. So to end, we like to ask, um, do you have any resources that you want to plug for our listeners today, Chrissy? or people to thank, causes or organizations to promote, um, anything else that you're doing that you want us to have on our radar? Uh, yes, please check out Reflecting Equity. Um, that's reflectingequity.com is our main website. Um, and then all of the publications that I mentioned throughout the podcast are in our resources tab. Um, all the papers are open access, so they're free to everyone. Please share them. And then you can also follow us at reflecting equity on Instagram and at reflect equity on Twitter. Yeah. So exciting. Please follow us. Please promote us. We're just growing. So, so exciting to be here and be talking about this organization. Yay. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming to talk with us today. Thank you so much, Chrissy. This is a uh, totally awesome. I'm, I'm so glad we're, we are re-friends now <laughs> on the other side of grad school. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. This yeah, this, this is really nice. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I came up with the name Reflecting Equity because I wanted something to incite, uh, I guess, reflection on water, like my relationship with water. Um, so I grew up in Miami Beach. Um, I've always loved the ocean. I've loved 
the sound of waves on a shore, I find that really relaxing and like grounds me. Um, and so we were on a hike, just like me and a group of friends once, and uh, a little bit south of Santa Cruz in a place called Sunset Beach. And we watched the most amazing sunset while we were just like sitting, listening to the water and like uh, just hanging out. And as it was, as the sunset was like happening, I was like, that's what I want my logo to look like. Um, and I, so I took this picture and like for months I was looking for a graphic designer that could replicate this picture. And I found some people that I think didn't do it justice. Um, so the logo that I have now is like that sunset embodied in this like amazing way. Um, so I guess I can shout out the graphic designer who did it. Her name is Julia Cohn. Um, she's amazing. She's in the Bay Area. Hi, Alexis again with Just One Last Ask. Do you love the podcast? Of course you do. You're listening to the outro after all. One of the best things you can do to support us is tell your friends. Ask them if you can look something up on their phone, then secretly sneak into their podcast app. Find us and click subscribe. Or, you know, you can tell them about it the normal way too. Either or, your pick. We trust you. Tell your friends.